Well, good morning. So good to see everybody this morning. Thanks so much for being here with us. And even if you're only able to join us online today, we're grateful to get to connect at some level. Grateful that we got to celebrate new lives in Christ this morning already. So it's been a full morning and we, we had to spread out our baptisms over a couple of weeks because we just had a bunch, right? Um, which I want to use that to, to make a little bit of a statement about what we're talking about this morning. In the past year, if the administrative team's numbers are correct, we've baptized 55 people in the last year. Yeah, that's a significant number. But I want to use this moment to set up what I'm about to say in the message this morning. You know, baptism is an event for the individual and it's an event for us together. It's more than a calendar moment. These lives are identified with us as a body of believers. So to interact with them and their story is not biblically is not just to sit in our chairs, listen to a little piece of their story and celebrate the salvation event that came to their lives. As great as that is, their lives are a part of our lives in a strategic purpose. So when I say there are 55 people among us, whose lives have been entrusted to us for something besides salvation, if that makes sense. God didn't entrust them to us to save them. Only he can do that. But he did entrust them to us for something else, which, which has everything to do with what we're talking about this morning. So uh, welcome to summer. Uh, every summer we do something that just takes advantage of the fact that summer is a unique season. And we turn our attention to something in the summer. So we've done, you guys who have been here for a while, we've done biblical theology studies. You'll remember them as summer Bible jam, where we've learned to read our Bibles more effectively over a series of weeks that we've studied together. We've done summer prayer jams, where we've learned to pray together over uh, learning how God uses prayer in our midst. We've done the statement of faith study in the summer where we study theology together. Well, well this summer, we're, we're going to study really what we're going to call personal ministry. And it's going to be under the umbrella of a book that's titled Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And so what I want to ask you to do, even before I preach the message, I just want to ask you to be on board with something that, that starts in a dinner and discipleship setting on June 22nd, be a Thursday night. It'll be six meetings that will start that Thursday night. And they'll be scattered a little bit throughout the summer to dodge some holidays and VBS and other elements. But before I even say anything about why this is so valuable, could you stop for a moment and just... Is God asking you to commit to give him six weeks to teach you and equip you in how to do personal ministry? You don't have to answer that, but do you have to answer God when he says it to you? Is God saying, because here's how this works. 
55 people, and again, not everybody who God entrusts to us has been in a tank and been baptized, and you've watched them be baptized. There's lots of folks that God is sending here. And God is entrusting them to us. Do you know what to do with them? Do you know what to say to them? Do you know how to interact with them when they are doing life sitting next to you? And, and life with all of its stuff, its difficulties, its celebrations, its confusion, its moments of loss. You are going to play a role of helping them interpret their God and their life. You're going to hold their hand at some level or, or we're not, which has a whole nother communication piece to it, doesn't it? So God is entrusting people to us, but we need to be equipped and prepared to minister to them when they come. So that's what instruments in the Redeemer's hands is about. It's, it's the fact that we are instruments in the hands of God that when he goes to work in our lives, he, he picks up these instruments and he uses the instruments to accomplish something in our lives. And I, I need to learn how to be an instrument. And maybe you've never heard it put that way. But have you ever learned how to do personal ministry? It's very valuable, super important, not an option for any of us. And so the things that we tend to stick in our summer, it tends to be an everybody in the church topic, not just something that may be D&Ds for a few people over here in this topic and something else for everybody else. This is for every one of us, every one of us needs a, a Lakeview Christian Center DNA download in how do you do personal ministry. So that's what this summer's about. So if you can stop and think, hey, let, let me commit to that. Let me, let me take six weeks out of this summer and, and listen to this and see how I play a role in that. Now, let me give you some context. If you go all the way back to the turn of the first century, we celebrate at Christmas the coming of the Savior, Jesus the Christ. Right? Better way to say it than Jesus Christ because it's not a first and last name. It's title. It's an awareness that this person that has captured human history like nobody else has ever, this person was something unique. He was the Christ. He was the Savior come to this world for every individual human being. His story is relevant to our story. And, and the whole world stops at Christmas and pays attention to that. Last week was Pentecost Sunday. I highlighted how the whole world doesn't stop and pay attention to that day. But something else came to the world on that day. The church. It is the birthday of the church, a community, a gathering and connection of people that will serve a unique role in human history and will touch the individual's lives as well. But it's more of a together thing than it is an individual thing. There's something about what Jesus came to do that's very individual, very individual. No one can make a decision for Christ for you. Nobody else's decision for Christ counts for you. Being a part of this church in the salvific form, in the I'm right with God for eternity form, uh, it doesn't matter that you're a part of this church. It doesn't matter what anybody else here believes. 
It doesn't matter if you grew up here. What matters is how you have individually responded to Jesus Christ. And that's what you heard this morning, right? The story of people who have individually responded. So if we're just kind of, you know, we're Americans because this is where we were born. I go to church here. This is where I go to church. I grew up in a religious tradition. Therefore, I'm a part of that. Listen, be very careful that that does that background landscape of your life, that, that you're not putting the wrong kind of hope in it. Just because you have religion in your landscape doesn't mean you're right with God. It doesn't mean his life has come to life in you. It doesn't mean his purposes are actively being fulfilled in you just because you got the landscape right around you. There's an individual dimension to this. At some point, Jesus Christ becomes the person who solves your biggest problem. And there's a moment where you come in contact with Everything's not right with me. I'm not okay. There's something about me that needs to be fixed. There's something not right inside of me. I just, I just don't feel right. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I, I, I feel empty. I, I, there's a void. There's just something that's got to get fixed here. Right? The Bible describes that experience. It uses wonderful language, right? Psalm 63, the psalmist, you know, psalms are songs. It's like a little poetic feel to them. And they're describing this feeling that needs a savior. The psalmist says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh, it, it faints, it's worn out. It's fatigued, it's exhausted for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So here's how the psalmist describes life on the inside, thirsty on the outside, nothing that seems to be able to fix it. It's a pretty good story, isn't it? I identify with that. You put it, get in touch with the fact that there are moments when that's, that's real. That comes to life for us. That on the inside of me, I like that picture, that image of thirst, because you've, you kind of feel it, right? That moment where life has generated something in you that needs to reach for something out there. Nobody can self-fix thirst. Did you know that? Right? You got, you're thirsty on the inside. There's nothing on the inside of you that can solve that. It has to come from outside of you. But what do you do when you're in a dry and parched land where there's nothing out there that can solve that? Well, this passage hints at my soul thirst for you. You got to do something, God, in here, individually for me. Jesus said something similar in Psalm, I mean, John chapter seven. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus didn't just highlight the fact that you might be thirsty. He highlighted that there was something unique about him that only he could reach into that thirst and make a difference. Now, interesting thought here, and I want to highlight some thoughts from the fellow who wrote Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul Tripp, a wonderfully insightful book, materials that we'll provide for the study as we move through it. You won't actually have the, the, the book that this comes from, but you'll have some study materials that, that go with it. And he describes, what was it like to live on planet Earth when nobody was thirsty? 
Listen to this. For a brief period of time when God created the world, perfect people walked through a perfect world in perfect union with God. The environment was lush and rich with a menagerie of animals that inhabited the air, land, and sea. Every physical and spiritual need was fully met. There was no unfed stomachs and diseases to be feared. The gardens were free of weeds and thorns. All you gardeners, can you say amen? Man and woman, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect union with each other. There was no unhealthy competition, no power struggle, no vengeance or recrimination. There was no secret plots or harsh words, no fear, guilt, shame, or rebellion against authority. There was understanding, communication, and Love. There was no struggle with identity, anxiety, depression, or addiction. There was no painful personal history to overcome. There was no fear of what might happen next. No mixed motives. No struggles with inordinate desire. There was no temptation to sin. With God, too, there was a perfect union. People loved, worshipped, and obeyed as they were created to do. All was right day after day. Life was better than anything we can imagine from our sin-scarred vantage point. But sadly, it didn't last long. What happened... In the moment that Adam and Eve gave in to temptation and sin entered into our world, thirst came among us. If you will, a black hole got installed in the human soul that wants to suck everything into it. That's every one of our conditions. Where do, you, where do you go? Black hole, I like that because that's like the biggest thing in the universe that nobody can figure out what the heck to do with. What do you do with a black hole? Jesus comes along and says, if you come believe in me, you. Right, so this isn't a group invitation. This is an individual being invited by the Savior to have their black hole get swallowed up by him. And each of us got to make that decision for ourselves. But I wrote in in your outline, if you got notes, at some level, the Christian life is about solving a personal need. Are you in touch with your needs? Do you know that your life needs something? Do you feel it? It's longing. It's sense of emptiness. I, I, I know I need something. Well, very much salvation is about that. But it is also about a life That's going somewhere. It's about an existence that has a goal. It has a destiny. And the daily routines that participate in that big destiny. There's a reason why the human soul loves a dream big story. Or a destiny motivational speech. Or a personal identity encounter moment. There's a reason why the human soul loves that. 
There's a reason why you can post inspirational sayings and there's something in our heart that leaps toward it because I want to believe that. I want to believe my life is going somewhere. So there's a dual thing happening here. I've, I've got a need that feels like thirst that something needs to jump into, but, but my life is more than me just coming to a moment where I, I drink something, believe something, receive something, and just go, oh, what about tomorrow? What about the next day? What's the, what's the rest of this about? Something in me wants some sense of destiny, some sense of purpose, some sense of every day I get up and there's something meaningful for me to be living. Not just a moment. I can tell you a story about being desperately thirsty, desperately broken, desperately needing something. And for me, my story says in February of 1979, I met Christ in a way that I never knew him. But there's been a lot of days since 1979. What you've been doing since then? Well, there's a, a destiny. You, we love these phrases, right? You have a destiny. That's the kind of stuff you stick up on your Facebook page, right? Somebody has figured out a way to say that in a new, fresh, unique way. You have a destiny. And you feel like, hey, yeah, that's, I've figured out. There's something for me to live toward. Yes, there is. I get that from the Bible, not just off of a Facebook page. I don't know if you guys have seen the, the Top Gun Maverick movie. It's a story about follow-up from the original movie about a naval aviator who's later in life, and he's got this critical moment where he's leading this mission. It really is a good movie. In fact, I looked at a, at a review to pick up on some of my words I wanted to pick on. The review says this. Top Gun Maverick is being lauded as one of the best movies of the year. And there's a reason for that. While the cinematography of the movie is impeccable with aerial sequences that leave the audience fueled with adrenaline and performances that deserve awards, it's the script that holds the movie up. The people behind this sequel have managed to create a story filled with interesting plot lines, great characters, and exceptional dialogue. Well, there was one moment for me as a pastor listening to a human being process life that stuck out for me. It's sort of the, the emotional linchpin of the movie. There's a moment where Maverick has come to this place where the assignment that he has is bigger than him. It's a little bit confusing. It looks like it might not be able to happen. And, and in those moments when we get caught in the crosshairs of life and the difficulties, we start asking some questions. And you start digging down inside of you to figure out, hey, what is this all about? What am I all about? Well, he's having a moment like that. And as he stares into the face of this other main character in the movie, full of emotion, he says a line that captures everybody in the movie. He turns to his friend and he says, in tears, is only Tom Cruise good. He says, I'm a naval aviator. It's not what I am, it's who I am. And to see his face and the moment and the intensity and then trying to make sense of his life, he reaches for, who am I in this moment? What defines me? 
And when we hear that coming from the character, there's something, the reason why the movie is interesting and good is because when he says that, something in us goes, yeah, I, I know that feeling. I, I know what that feels like. But lots of us trying to figure out exactly who am I? What defines the day-to-day existence of my life? Why do I get up and work through traffic and face difficulties and have relationships that end in heartache sometimes and conflict in others? Why am I doing all this? What's the point? Well, something needs to float up from deep inside of us that doesn't just say, hey, I I was broken and I came to a moment where I met Jesus and he was the answer to a thirsty soul. And now what are you going to do? Now who are you? Well, I'm a formerly thirsty guy. That's sort of true. But that doesn't help a whole lot, does it? And you could even say, well, I'm a formerly thirsty guy who's going to heaven one day. That's true. Very helpful and super important. Who are you until that happens? What you can be doing between believed in Jesus, solve the thirst issue, and going to be with him in heaven. What, what's happening in between there? Well, that's kind of that destiny language, right? I think I wrote in your outline, what is this destiny and purpose that reaches deep into my personal experience, my personality, my longing to find something significant from my life? And and from within me, it says, I'm a what? It's not what I am. It's who I am. What feels like that inside of me? Well, let me give you a little bit of a hint here. I mean, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn with me, you can look or you can look on the screen with me if you don't have a Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul interacts with local church members. Paul's having a little bit of a difficulty with these guys. He's talking about life. He's talking about his own ministry. He's trying to get some dialogue going that's going to help them at a local level. But they're doing life. And Paul's going to jump in with this information. Let me talk to you about life by starting here. Let's know what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, this is interesting because he's interacting with them about the lives that they're living, the issues they're facing, how they're doing and receiving ministry. And he reaches back to an event over a thousand years ago to a meeting at a mountain called Mount Sinai where something was happening way back there that, you know, was important for them to understand the difference between what's going on for you right now versus what was going on for them. There's another story. Your life is part of another story. And I know in our world today, it's all about your own life and who you are. And what you've identified as who you are and how you've defined yourself and what your experiences have been. And then we love those phrases of dream big, dream big. But what are you dreaming about? 
I'm, I'm dreaming about something I was taught about me that's going to be super fulfilling for me if I can just figure it out and live it. So dream big, man. That's why we hate anybody who pours water on that phrase. Because it sounds like my dream is about my fulfillment. But Paul turns around and says, can I just tell you something? If you don't get the time zone of God that you're living in right now, you don't get you. So let me take you back to this mountain, this event. There was an age, if I can call it that. There was an age of the law that was given. That at a moment, it was received on a mountain by a man named Moses. And he brought it down to us. And everybody lived in that age. And then that age gave way to this age. This age is the one we talked about last week. Went from the age of the law where God revealed himself in particular ways, part of his purpose, live in this time zone, but that time zone is going to give way to the age of the spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we're going to live on the other side of that. And Paul says, can I introduce you to this phrase? Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory. The time zone that you live in now is the time zone of the ministry of the spirit. Then he goes on a few verses later in verse 12. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. All right. Now this is their story. Individually and collectively, they have a hope. There's a hope functioning in them right now, but hope has a context in it. The context is the ministry of the spirit and the age of the spirit. Since we, we have a hope. We are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, right? That's the former age. That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. They are around the phrases, the sentences, the Bible, the truths of God, but there's no connection. There's a separation between what God is saying and what God has revealed and what's being experienced. There's a veil, there's a wall there that's in between their experience and what this word. And Paul's saying this is still happening for people. He says in verse 16, but... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, now we're getting collected together. Now, this is no longer individual. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. All right, can you see two things here? There's a moment in this passage. There's a moment when human beings need a veil to be removed. That's a moment. 
That veil, it doesn't sort of rotten out and get some seams in it to where you kind of peek through it. It it gets removed in a moment. So there's a moment in this passage and, and don't underestimate and don't think too highly of ourselves to think, hey, well, I don't need a veil removed. Have you ever thought about in your life that thirsty moment, that separation moment is because there's a veil there? Have you ever thought that, because you'd be thinking, well, you know, there's a sense of fairness and I'm supposed to get what I deserve and et cetera, et cetera. You were born into this world with a veil that you can't see through. And only in Christ is it removed. Only in Christ is it removed. If you ever have a hope to see the God who created life and therefore life correctly, the veil has to get removed. I'm not making this up, right? We just read the Bible together. That's what the Bible says. And then it makes this massive statement when it says, because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ is it taken away. Not through human performance. Not through self-determination. I can get this thing taken away. This is like the thirst that's inside of us. You can't self-fix thirst. You can't remove this veil. Education cannot remove this veil. You understand? If we could stand up the best school systems in the universe the veil would still remain. There's not a civics book that's going to remove that veil. There's not a teacher that your child interacts with that's going to remove this veil. Only in Christ, only in Christ, as uncomfortable as it sounds, these are those passages in the Bible that make Jesus Christ like no one else. Not in Islam. Islam cannot remove the veil. Can can Islam give you religious activities, things to believe, stuff to practice? Yes, it can. Can it remove the veil? Now, if it can, the Bible is lying. Because the Bible clearly says only in Christ can this veil be removed. So this is a moment, right? Every human being individually has got to come to this moment. and, And the veil gets removed, but there's still Tuesday and Wednesday coming. And this passage keeps going into that. When you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's stuff going on today and tomorrow and the next day. And these things would be the ministry of the spirit taking place in and through the people who came to this moment and had the veil removed. Life continues This is the stuff that's made of, I am something. It's who I am. Every day of my life, it's who I am. This moment is a moment, but there's a ministry after the moment that's in the Bible. And it's just clearly there. And this moment is sort of like getting a passport. You guys ever gotten a passport, you know, going through the process, you know, you fill out some stuff, go, you take a picture and submit thing. And then the thing comes to you, right? You'll go pick it up or I guess it can come in the mail. 
And all of a sudden, you have a passport. I, I have a moment where I have a passport. It became active. I could travel all over the world. I have a passport. Where are you going? Well, I haven't really thought about that a whole lot. I have a passport though. I got a testimony that I have a passport. That's great. It's awesome. You have been released from not being able to travel. Where are you going? And this for too many in the Christian life is sort of who we are. Got a passport, but we're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. We're not giving ourselves. Hey, man, what, what if you could go here and get that thing stamped and go here and get that thing stamped and go here and get that thing stamped and experience traveling? Right? That's, that's why you got the passport. Not just so you could have the passport. I love the fact that there's this thing in a moment called justification. Where I get made right with God for eternity. And I celebrate that and I stand in the tank and I tell the story about the day that it happened. But the next day is coming. And the day after that, the day after that, what what are you doing? You're just not a person with a passport in your wallet now. You are in the age of the spirit. You are doing ministry the way God has designed it. And there's this big word in scripture, and that's why it's in the title of this book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. What is God doing? He's redeeming his creation. It's it's a word of restoration. It's a word that has to do with paying a price, a ransom, in order to bring something back. Well, what is he bringing back? Well, there was a hint here in this passage, right? We are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what's happening after I get my passport on the next day? I'm I'm part of something that's bigger than me. That's seeing lives transform from one degree of glory to another. What is that glory? It's the image of God being returned to his creation. Remember, this is God's original purpose. Genesis chapter one, let us make man in our image. And then he gives him an assignment to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. He's to be actively bringing the image of God into creation in a variety of ways. And God is now redoing that. That's what God is up to, and he has called individuals to be a part of a group who are doing that. And every one of us, on every day, we got our own little version of Maverick inside of us that we're trying to figure out, who am I again? Who am I at the deepest level of my life? And that's going to pop up in interesting ways, right? Because something inside of us wants to say, it's not just what I am. It's who I am. All right. What are you being tempted to fill in that blank with? Well, I'm, I'm an actor. I'm a, I'm a singer. I'm a musician. I'm an athlete. 
And this is stuff that we're all tempted from a young age. You're tempted to say, hey, that's, that's the title I want to grab because that's going to define me and my existence. I'm the fastest kid at the playground. At some point, it starts little. And that's enough for you. You know, you want to look into the camera and say, I'm the fastest kid in the playground. It's not what I am. It's who I am. Right? I mean, you want that to weigh something, right? I'm the... I'm the funniest person in the room. That's who they, somebody in this room, that's who you are. And you work every moment and you feel good about things when you're the funniest person in the room. And so there is this sense that God would like to fill the blank in. I am an image bearer of God. It's not what I am. It's who I am. But in this chapter, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bear the image of God. There was a piece of the image of God even before I knew Christ. There's, there's an image of God that's going to go off in the eternity, but I'm in this chapter right now. And when I bear the image of God in this chapter, I am involved in the transformation of myself and others to where that image of God is being seen a little bit more and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. It's not what I am. It's who I am. Every day of my life, that is who I am. So what's this got to do with a study of this in the summer? Why are we doing a study instruments in the Redeemer's hands? All right, can I buckle up? I'm going to give you a Google Earth view of Ephesians, right? You know what Google Earth is? You start way out here and we're going to land at a pinpoint in just a second, but we're going to do it really, really fast. So here's a Google Earth of how do we get to this moment? Why does it matter? Ephesians chapter one, God makes this announcement. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse seven, in him, we have something. What is it? Redemption. We have this whole redemption thing going on. We have redemption, the active work of God redeeming his creation. We have that through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So this is the individual piece. This is where you stand in the tank and you tell the story about what God did to save you, to include you in this, to give you every spiritual blessing. God did all this. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that counsel had an age of the law followed by the age of Pentecost. The way God would interact with humanity would look this way in this age and it will look differently, the ministry of the Spirit, in this age. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the thirst quencher, and you heard about him, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How important is that? Well, can I tell you it's super duper important on Tuesday and Thursday and next week? Because if all you got is a passport and you got nowhere to go, you got a strange version of Christianity on your hands. 
But what if God has a purpose? Well, he said he did in Ephesians chapter 1. What if this purpose looked this way in this chapter, but it looks differently in this chapter? What if that starts to creep into my life to where I can say it's not what I am, it's who I am every day. It's who I am. I am an instrument in God's hands, redeeming, watching among us the transformation work of God as one degree of glory gives way to another degree of glory. And I'm part of that. I just don't have a passport. I've got stuff to do in my life, right? Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? So you were sealed with the spirit and that spirit has a ministry and it has even more glory in our lives. So what is the ministry of the spirit? Right, you guys remember these verses? First Corinthians chapter 12, verse four. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Okay, so now we're not just talking about individuals who had their thirst quenched. Individuals who were justified by God. This is God working in an everyone setting. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. He gives you something individually to be a part of something bigger. And this is who we are. For as in the body... As the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. And you keep reading in Corinthians. I know I'm racing through this, but many of you are familiar with this already. First Corinthians chapter 14. Now, I, I want you all, Paul said, this is, this is functioning. This is the, the members of the body are now functioning. I want you all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. So, so that why? So that the church may be built up. Why is the ministry of the spirit existing? So that the church may be built up, transformed from one degree of glory to another. Why is the spirit at work? Because that's what he's doing right now. That's the age of the spirit that you and I live in. And I can't figure out my story unless I first visit his story. I can't stop and self-define while I'm clueless of what God is doing on planet earth right now. Do you understand? I am created for a reason that reports back to his reasons. He has a will for everything that exists. For me to start shopping for a self-definition that's going to fulfill me, fix my thirst, and give me something that says it's who I am, but to have no idea about who he is and what he's doing makes zero sense. Zero. And God comes along and says, hey, let me just tell you what I'm doing so that you can understand who you are in what I'm doing. And that's what you get in Corinthians. 
this moment where God reveals he is redeeming. He is bringing back his glory in his creatures. And he is using instruments to do it. It's not just an individual sport. It's not just like you get saved, you meet Jesus, you go live on an island by yourself away from all the weirdos that populate churches, for goodness sake. We know there's a few of them. I'm going to go live by myself and me and the Holy Spirit. Oh, did you read about the ministry of the Spirit? Because he doesn't sound like he does it that way. He sounds like he connects people into a body and there's toes and feet and hands and eyes and everybody does something. And when he does something, you do something and your doing brings transformation to your own soul and to those around you. Then you get to be a part of what God is doing. Editing moment. Give me a second. Let me go back to Mr. Paul Tripp. Listen to this carefully. Here's, here's the callings that you and I have in our own lives that are part of something bigger than our own lives. Tripp says, perhaps the best way to understand these grand purposes is to eavesdrop on eternity. In Revelation 19, the great multitude of the redeemed stands before the throne like the roar of rapids exclaims, hallelujah, for Our Lord God Almighty reigns, right? This is a massive audience crying out before the throne of God. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride. That's a together word. Jesus isn't just marrying you. Although you are personally justified, he's not just marrying you. He's marrying his bride. That's a together word. His bride has made herself ready. The bride has been ministering in the Holy Spirit to be ready for this day. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Think about what they are singing. It's not, I got that job. My marriage was fantastic. I was surrounded by great friends and my kids turned out well. It's not, I defeated depression and mastered my fears. Right? None of those things are problems. God has gathered a people who have a passion for his glory and find ultimate comfort in his rule. They are people who followed by faith and obeyed at great cost, who sacrificed and suffered, but with no hint of regret, they have found lasting satisfaction in the person and rule of the redeemer. As we listen to eternity, we realize that the kingdom is about God radically changing people. It's not what I am. That's who I am. That's who you are. In the hands of a God who's doing that, if you are instruments in the hands of someone, you might want to know what that guy's up to. He is radically changing people, but not in the self-absorbed sense our culture assumes. Christ came to break our allegiance to such an atrophied agenda and call us to the one goal worth living for. His kingdom is about the display of his glory in people who are holy. This is the change he came 
lived, died, and rose to produce. This is the life and work he offers us in exchange for the temporary glories we would otherwise pursue. The kingdom agenda is intended to control our hearts and transform our lives. What is this God doing that he would pick up instruments and go to work in his creation to do? He is transforming us from one degree of glory to another, and we are instruments in his hands. Do I know how to cooperate with that? People are being entrusted to us. God will pick up our lives as instruments and begin to work in their lives. We don't need bad ideas, bad theology, and bad approaches. We don't need to become personally evangelists from my personality, my history, where I've come from, my traditions, my favorite phrase that doesn't get in line with God's phraseology. But yet that's what I'm going to impart to you when you get around me in the local church. Does that sound okay? Might it be that it would be valuable for us to learn how to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands? Because a giant purpose is in this. And, and, and it's the thing that you're going to stare into the camera at some point in your life and realize it's not what you are. It's who you are. Deep in your daily existence, you are being used by God in this setting called the ministry of the spirit until you go to be with Jesus, which by the way, when you go to be with him, you will not be used this way. I won't need any help in changing. I will have a glorified body and a mind that can take things in. That's no longer like that thing that ate of the tree. God will bring to me insight and revelation. He'll feed it to me at just the right rate. It will be interpreted and handled by him before it touches my mind. I will not be in confusion. I won't need your help. But I do now. You have a role to play with each other. So I'm going to jettison a little bit the rest of this. Where's my son? Seth, can you come play? Let me, let, me let, uh, let me let Paul Tripp do one more thing. I'll let Paul do the insulting work. I'm not saying this. Paul said it, okay? <laughs> Paul opens his book with this invitation to the church, and he says this. He says, I'm persuaded that the church today has many more consumers than committed participants. Sure, Joe and Sheila may volunteer for a specific activity like VBS or a diaconal project, but this frequently falls woefully short of the everyone all the time model of the New Testament. Our tendency toward ecclesiastical consumerism has seriously weakened the church. For most of us, Church is merely an event we attend or an organization we belong to. We do not see it as a calling that shapes our entire 
life. But consider this. We could never hire enough paid staff to meet the ministry needs of the average local church. The passive body that pays the professionals, culture of the modern evangelical church, must be forsaken for the ministry model God has so wisely ordained. To that end, this book has been written. Let us all be humble enough to recognize something. You and I have been raised in, we've, had, we've cut our teeth in a consumer culture. Every angle of convincing, every stand-up, every advertisement, everything you and I interact with flows out of a consumer philosophy. It flows out of what's in it for me. What do I prefer? And, and now we're consumers on steroids in the last two decades. So there's not a one of us, including the guy in the pulpit here. There's not a one of us who don't have some form of consumer expectations floating in our veins. Not a one of us. And we come to a church, come to an organization, come to something become very easy for us to think, what's this thing going to do for me? What's here for me to absorb, for me to benefit from? Oh, I'm an older person and they've got a seniors ministry. So, okay, great. That's not wrong, but it's part of your story. Well, we've got kids. We're raising kids right now. That's just the season that we're in. So what's the children's ministry like here? What's the youth ministry like here? Again, that's, that's not wrong. But if that's the only questions you're asking, it just gives away we're consumers. We, we want to know what the prices are at Walmart. What you got for me? And yet God turns around and says, hey, there's this moment that began at Pentecost. It's, it's the age of the spirit. It's the ministry of the spirit. It, it's going to give something to every member. And then God's going to want to use that in people's lives to give care, support, friendship, to get around somebody who's bleeding and help them to deal with hurts in a way that's biblical and wise, to teach truths to one another, to hold each other's hands when you're in a crisis, when, you got, when you're just feeling like, I got nothing, I got nothing. There are too many of those needs here. And there are not enough paid professionals to do it. But that's not how it's supposed to be done anyway. It's every member figuring out what part do I have to play. And you just play that part. The next thing you know, people are encountering what they need as they're just taking that next step from one degree of glory to another. In their moment of unbelief, in their moment when they are freaking out, or in their moment of great celebration and you're there to celebrate with them. And there have been some moments, even recently, where some of the members of our church have traveled through some of the darkest valleys. 
some of the most difficult things in their lives. How meaningful it has been to watch people run toward them. To pick up their burden with them. And some of these haven't ended happy. You know, we want a story that has a happy ending. But can I just applaud as a pastor every one of you who's committed to each other, not because it has a happy ending, but because somebody that you love just needs you. Because consumers want a happy ending. I want this to feel a certain way for me. That's why I'm here. What if it doesn't feel that way? What if God's called you and he's going to, by the spirit, give you something to be in that moment, in that hour with people? Well, that's, that's the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. It's not what I am. It's who I am. Until Jesus comes back and this season closes down and we don't do this anymore. But until that day, that's, that's who I am. And it needs to grip us. I had wondered something in the last two years. Just wondered, and it came back to me as I was studying for this. I don't think we've ever had a year where we baptized 55 people. We had 34 people go through our two members class, and those are, those are individuals. So they, they're bringing families with them. So I don't know how many people we've added. Last time we tried to do some kind of a educated guess on how many people show up here on a regular basis. It was about 1,200 people. We have the smallest paid staff that we've ever had in the last two plus decades. And I wondered a year or two ago whether God was trying to awaken this in us by thinning out the people that may be our default people. Well, they'll take care of that. That's their responsibility. They'll do that. What if God's saying, that's not the kind of church I want you to be. I want everybody to do their part. I want everybody to figure out what the ministry of the spirit looks like through them into other people's lives. That's what I want Lakeview Christian Center to be. That thought came back to me last night as I was praying for us. So what if this is the season where the Lord is saying, hey, I, I want to equip the church to be instruments in my hands. I, I want people with mindsets and insight and skill that the Holy Spirit will use in the days ahead to minister to the rest of the people I'm sending to you and to the ones that are already here among us. Listen, that's a different mindset than the typical church this size. The typical church this size keeps hiring and hiring and hiring to keep up with doing the ministry and doing the ministry and doing the ministry. And for some reason, the Lord has said, nah, I'm going to keep growing the church and I'm going to keep the leadership team small. That doesn't sound like a good idea, God. (laughs) Unless you're trying to do this. This is an each person, everybody message. 
If I invited a response, we'd all would just simply get up out of our chairs and cram into the altar. But it's, it's each of us. The passage I didn't go to, I hope you look, look back at the notes, Ephesians 4. He gave gifts to equip the church for the work of ministry, for building up the body. Who does the building up? The people doing the work of ministry. Who does that? The people equipping? No. People who have been equipped. They do the work of ministry. And then the next phrase, until we all attain. Until we all. When I get up on Tuesday, that phrase is still alive. Until we all. We are not there yet. And next week, until we all, we're still not there yet. So it's not what I am. It's who I am. Until we all, that's who I am. Until we all attain to the fullness of Christ. We're not there yet. We won't fully be there until he returns. So I want to invite us to pray. I want to invite you just to stand up with me. One of the most profound prayers that we ever, ever pray. It's a very simple prayer. Doesn't require deep theology. It's just the affection of our heart to turn to God in the word surrender. In a posture that just says, Lord, I, I don't know all that you want to fill in for me. But I don't need to know. I just, I just surrender to you. I'm just open to whatever you want to give to me, whatever you want to awaken in me in this season. I, I, I'm just going to obey you and follow you. Let's pray that together. Father, Lord, so many of us have traveled through life where the deepest thing we were aware of was how thirsty our soul felt how empty we felt, how disconnected we felt, how things just seemed to come up short and life lacked fulfillment. Will we remember that experience. And Lord, we responded when you said, if any of you are thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Lord, we remember that moment. We remember that day where we came to you, presented our thirsty souls, put our faith in you and drank deeply of who you are, who only you could be. The God who removes the veil, lets us see, gives us life on the inside. Lord, just a moment for us to remember. Lord, thank you. Thanks for the passport. Now what? Well, Lord, would you help us to travel into the far reaches of your purposes? Lord, help us to get this passport stamped again and again and again as we follow you into places where your spirit is ministering and we're part of that. Where you are using us to touch somebody else's journey from one degree of glory to another. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. This is the age of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit that far exceeds the ministry of the law that came before it. 
So God, we're raising our expectations. And God, we're going to take some time this summer to learn how to be equipped to be used by your spirit in one another's lives. Lord, would you put us in a stronger, more equipped, more solid place by the end of this summer to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands for your great purpose, for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, God bless you guys. Hey, don't forget the picnic. Grab a lunch. Come join us out at Lafayette Park. A little bit of a guest reception for those of you guys who are here today visiting. Love a chance just to meet with you, tell you hello beforehand.